Good morning, everybody. Thankful to be here with you guys today. It's so good to see your faces and to worship the Lord with you. And wanted to share with you, I received a card this week, which was fun, uh, from Swaziland. And uh, I've never received one of those before. But uh, it was from a lady that I met in a town called Hawani named Maria. And she's a go-go Maria, Grandma Maria. She's probably about 70 years old. And it was just a thank you letter to our church um, saying, please, in the name of Jesus, thank your church from our Hawani church. And thank you uh, for the curriculum that you purchased for our church. And uh, it was like three, we had $300 given to go towards that. And she was so excited when we gave it to her. She said, this is going to take me be enough to take me home to god like they're like she's excited to have that because they don't you know have a pastor and so they're really excited to get some really good resources and so i want to share that with you and and uh, thank you again for being part of that um and if you're new here thanks for being here my name is dan and i'm one of the pastors here and just thankful to have you guys here and i pray that uh, you let us know who you are so we can get to know you better a few days ago, I was driving through town, and I saw a teenager walking on the sidewalk, and I realized that it was a guy from our youth group who I hadn't seen in a long time, and so I pulled over and yelled at him. I like to do that to people, and, um, and I said, hey, come over here, and he ran over and, uh, to the car, and I opened my window and talked to him for a minute. I said, do you need a ride somewhere? And he's like, yeah, and I was like, okay, we'll hop in. And uh, he opened the passenger door and hopped in the car. And as soon as he got into the car, this incredible aroma filled the car. A good aroma, okay? This was, this was incredible. My car smelled amazing all of a sudden. And honestly, I was surprised because wonderful smells isn't something I was used to in all my years working with teenagers. Um, but I didn't want to embarrass him. And so I, uh, I didn't say anything about the cologne he was wearing, but it did smell great. And, and I, I asked him where he needed a ride to, and so we started heading in that direction. And it didn't take long for him to proudly tell me that he was off to see a girl, and he was going to meet her parents. And, uh, and then I was like, oh, okay, this makes sense. And I told him, I was wondering why it smelled so good in here. And uh, we had a, he smiled, and we had a good laugh about it. But uh, I realized that some people use perfume and cologne every day, but oftentimes special perfumes, special, special smells are saved for special occasions. Um, whether that's a date or a holiday or a special event, colognes and, and perfumes are often reserved for days that are set apart, right? And... The same was true in Jesus' day, and perfumes were much harder to come by back then. And in the passage we're going to look at today, uh, it's amazing to see what happens. Jesus' friend Mary pours an entire jar of very expensive perfume onto him to show him how much she loves him and is devoted to him. And her act of devotion to him really contrasts with the attitudes of everybody else that we see in the passage toward Jesus. And so if you've got your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to John chapter 11, verse 45, and uh, we're going to read through chapter 12, verse 11. But you can just start by opening up to John chapter 11, 
verse 45. If you have your Bible, if you don't own a Bible, let us know. We would love to, to give you one. <clears throat> We've been working through this whole passage of seeing Jesus interact with his close friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and Lazarus died, and we saw Jesus grieve over his death, and then last week we saw Jesus speak a word and raise Lazarus from the dead after he'd been in the grave for four days. And there was a whole uh, crowd of eyewitnesses who saw this happen, and so it didn't take long for word to spread. And lots of people came to see Lazarus, and he lived in this little village called Bethany, and they wanted to see him, and they wanted to see Jesus with their own eyes. And that's what we're going to dive into in this passage here. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this word that you've given us today, and we believe, Jesus, that you are the resurrection and the life. And you have said that, you have shown that, and you've promised to us that whoever trusts in you will not die spiritually, but will have everlasting life. And we thank you for that. We thank you for doing that for us because obviously that's not something we could do for ourselves. So as we read your word today, God, for those of us who believe, uh, I ask that you would help us today to work out our salvation with, with fear and trembling, as your word says, as we come to this deeper understanding of your awesome love. And um, for those who don't believe, I pray that you would grant them faith today as they hear this good news proclaimed. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would protect us physically and spiritually, be with the kids next door and bless them. And we pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, I'll start by reading John eleven forty-five to 53. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him, Jesus, to death. So when Lazarus died, <clears throat> lots of Jews from Jerusalem heard about it, and they walked uh, just a couple, less than two miles to Bethany to grieve with his sisters, Mary and Martha. So for us, that would be like walking to Hagen from here, okay? It's about two miles, a little less than that. And when these Jews saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. We read in verse 45 to 46 that many of them believed. Many of them believed in Jesus. And then it says, but some of them went back to Jerusalem and told the Pharisees about it. And of course, the Pharisees were fed up with Jesus, right? They, we already know that from reading through John. They're fed up with Jesus. They're fed up with his miracles. And so they call together the council, which was called the Jewish Sanhedrin, probably of about potentially 70 leaders 
it was the highest governing council of the Jewish people. And none of the people on the council, none of these Jewish leaders denied that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. They just refused to believe what the sign affirmed, that Jesus was God. Okay? They, they didn't believe that. And they saw Jesus as a threat. Uh, they were afraid that Jesus would cause an uprising in the Roman Empire and that the Romans would close the Jewish temple and that the Romans would come and destroy the Jewish people. And so the high priest on the council, whose name was Caiaphas, said, you guys, this is an easy fix. There's no need for all of us to be destroyed. Instead, let's just kill Jesus and the Jews will be saved. Now, of course, the ironic thing about the statement is that the Jewish leaders see Jesus as a sacrificial lamb, but not the sacrificial lamb that they truly need, right? They want to kill Jesus so that they can keep political peace. But what they truly need, and which they don't see, is that they need for Jesus to die so that they can have a different peace, a peace that's way more important, a spiritual peace with God. The same is true today, you guys. It doesn't matter if we have all the political peace in the world, but if we do not have peace with our maker, if we don't have peace with God, that comes first. We pray for peace in the world, but we know that we're sojourners here. We're here for a little while. On the cross, Jesus died not to save one nation, but to save people from all nations, to save people from all people group, groups on the earth. On the, on the cross, Jesus acted as our substitute by becoming our evil, which has separated us from him, which has separated us from our God. And then on the cross, Jesus was separated from God the Father as Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath that we should have drunk. And he did that so some of us won't have to. And it was God's love that was, was, was the um, catalyst for this, okay? It was God's love that put Jesus on the cross for us. It was God's love that um, put Jesus on the cross so that we can be friends with God again, so that you and I can have our wrongdoings and sins forgiven and God gives us this when we trust in him for eternal life. So if you're here today, and if you've never trusted in Jesus to save you, then he commands you to do that today. That's one of the things, when you're reading the Bible and you see Jesus make a command, remember, that is God making a command. When he says believe, he's not saying, I recommend that you believe. That's the voice of God, your creator, telling you, believe. Believe in me because he loves you more than you have any idea. <laughs> because he wants good for you better than you can comprehend. So if you know that you need God, if you know that you need God, man, praise God that you know that. Praise God that uh, you know his, you need his forgiveness and that you know that you need him to redeem your life from what it is, what it has been. Pray to Jesus today. Pray to Jesus. Pray to God. Trust in him today. And this is what he says he does. He 
fills us with his own Holy Spirit. Okay? And the Holy Spirit begins, he, well, there's a, he gives us a new heart, a new, new we're, we're a new being, okay, that changes our desires. Okay? And what Jesus is doing is he is redeeming us. He is recreating us into his image. It's incredible. And so that our desires all of a sudden, our greatest desires, are no longer for the things of this world, but for the things of God. Doesn't mean we, we aren't tempted by the world. Doesn't mean our flesh doesn't want things of the world. It means what I want more is Jesus. <laughs> and if you're already a Christian, praise God. Praise God that he has saved. And keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep turning to Jesus, because your turning isn't done. You are saved, but we turn to Jesus. We repent from our sin every day, and we trust in him, and keep seeking to obey him in all areas of your life. You and I cannot do that on our own. We have to abide in Jesus, right? In order to, to have his power working in our lives. And so continue to do that. Now, sadly, the Jewish leaders here saw Jesus as the solution to their politics, right, to their political problem. They don't see Jesus as the solution to their spiritual problem. And so they conspired together, and now they make concrete plans to kill him. So let's keep reading. Verses 54 to 57 say, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he'll not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Stop there. Uh, Jesus knew that the Jewish leaders were now taking intentional steps to have him killed. And so he left Bethany, which was right by Jerusalem, and he traveled up north a ways to this little uh, place called Ephraim. And meanwhile, in Jerusalem, the Passover festival had begun. And thousands and thousands of Jews had migrated from the country to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And at the festival, the leaders, the Jewish leaders, had announced that Jesus is now a wanted man. And anyone who knows anything about Jesus' whereabouts should come tell the authorities immediately. Verse 56 says that the people in the temple then were talking to each other. And they were asking, what do you think Jesus is going to do? You think he's going to show up for Passover? So the tension here is rising in Jerusalem. And meanwhile, Jesus makes a significant move. He, uh, after staying in Ephraim for some time, Jesus returns to Bethany, which was on the outskirts of the town, remember, where they were hunting for Jesus. And Jesus returned to Bethany this time, not as the miracle worker Jesus, but as the Lamb of God who has come to lay down his life for his friends. So this is the beginning of what we might call Holy Week. Okay. Let's keep reading. John 12, 1 to 11 says, 
Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you, will all, you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So it was Saturday when Jesus came to Bethany. And the next day was what we know as Palm Sunday, when Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey as people welcomed him into town by waving palm branches. It's the day before Palm Sunday here, and Jesus returns to Bethany to see Lazarus and Mary and Martha again. And they're excited, of course, to see Jesus back in town. And so they throw a dinner for him. And it says that Martha is busy serving Jesus and his disciples and everybody else who might have been there. And Lazarus, the formerly dead Lazarus, is sitting at the table with everybody else. Well, this is incredible. He's probably talking and eating and laughing. How amazing, you guys, would that be to eat dinner with the formerly dead man? I mean, it would be fun to ask him some questions. <laughs> that would be fun. Now, the group wasn't actually sitting at the table. They would have been lying down on the ground around a low table with their heads at the table and with their feet extended out toward the wall. And verse 3 says that at some point during the meal, Lazarus' sister Mary showed her devotion to Jesus in a very beautiful way. Mary had a jar of very expensive perfume and its price was equal to your annual salary, okay, or your annual wages. So think about what that is for you. That was what this cost. And she opened the jar and poured its contents over Jesus' feet. And because of the other gospel accounts, we know that Mary also poured the ointment over Jesus' head and essentially covered his body with this wonderful perfume. And the passage says that Mary didn't merely pour the perfume onto Jesus, but he uses the word anoint. So she anointed him with the perfume. So she has set apart this perfume, which is very special to her, for a special day. And this was the day it had been saved for. She poured it over Jesus to signify that just like this perfume was holy and set apart, Jesus is holy and set, the perfume is set apart 
Jesus is holy and set apart. Okay? So, after pouring the perfume, Mary took Jesus' feet into her hands, it says, which his feet were dirty from travel, and they were now mixed with perfume. Uh, the, the dirt was mixed with perfume. And Mary unbound her hair and used her long hair to wipe off the dirt from his feet. And everybody else in the room is probably just watching this happen with confused looks on their faces. That's quite a scene to think about. Verse 3 says, This wonderful fragrance from Mary's perfume filled the whole house so that you couldn't go anywhere without smelling the perfume and remembering this amazing thing that Mary had done for Jesus. And after witnessing this beautiful thing that Mary did, the first words out of Judas's mouth are, what a waste. Why didn't she just sell the perfume for $60,000? Give the money away. What a downer, <laughs> right? What a downer. Can you believe the, I mean, when you think about that, think about that these words came out of Judas's mouth while he was sitting next to God, okay? And worse than that, Judas didn't even care about poor people. So the passage says, he just saw Mary's offering as a waste of money that could have gone into his own pocket. And apparently, Judas persuaded some of the other disciples to agree with him, and so Jesus says, leave her alone. She's kept this perfume for the day of my burial. So Jesus is saying that whether Mary knew it or not, she was actually anointing his body for his upcoming death which would be just in a few days. Jesus says, you will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, Jesus is not saying that we should not give money to the poor, right? Anybody who tries to make that argument has not really read the Bible much because God cares deeply about the poor. We're commanded to care for the poor. But what he's telling his disciples is, you will always be able to give your money to the poor. They will always be with you. But I'm here on earth for a very short period of time. And Mary's done a beautiful thing by worshiping me this way. And we're going to talk more about the significance of Mary's offering in a minute, but let's finish reading the passage. Verses 9 to 11 say, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now, there are thousands and thousands of Jews in Jerusalem for the Passover, and word got out that Jesus was in Beth Bethany with Lazarus, this resurrected man that they'd heard all about, and so this large crowd migrates from Jerusalem into the small village of Bethany to see Jesus, to see Lazarus, and this only made the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem even more angry because not only were people visiting Jesus and Lazarus, but they were interacting with them, and after doing so, many of them believed that Jesus was God, and they came back to Jerusalem telling other people that. And so verse 9 says that the Jewish chief priests also made plans to kill Lazarus. Now, as we look at this passage today, it's filled with lots of different people that are all responding to Jesus in some way. 
If you just take verses 9, 10, and 11, you'll see this. In verse 9, people come to see him because they're curious about him. In verse 10, there are people who have seen Jesus, but they refuse to believe that he's God, and they make plans to kill him. And then in verse 11, people have seen Jesus, and they believe that he's God. Now, as you think about where you are at in your faith journey today, which group of people best describes you? Are you curious about Jesus? Are you still trying to decide what to make of him? Or have you made up your mind that Jesus can't be God, all of this Bible stuff is a joke, and I'm basically just here to please one of my family members? Or are you someone who believes that Jesus is God and you have a living friendship with God? Well, whichever group describes you, I'm thankful you're here today. We as a church are thankful you're here today because thinking about your eternity, thinking about Jesus is the best and wisest way you can spend your Sunday morning. That's the truth. Now, if you're here today and you are, you would maybe put yourself in the curious crowd or maybe even the antagonistic crowd, then I would be curious to know what do you think it would take for you to believe that Jesus is God? Just think about that. And I would write down that. And then I would look for answers from the Bible because it claims to be God's word. And I would look for answers by talking to Christians you know that love the Bible. And I would consider talking to a pastor or somebody who knows uh, some answers maybe about these things. Because if Jesus is the truth like he says he is, then it means that he's not scared in the least of you asking hard questions about him. He's, he's not afraid of that. He's not hiding. The real question is whether you have the motivation and courage to seek him. That's the real question. Because oftentimes when I'm talking to people about spiritual things, they just, we all have a tendency to piggyback on what other people say instead of looking for ourselves to see what God says in his word as Christians and as non-Christians. So whether, if I'm in a theological discussion with you, I really don't care what you have to say. I love you. I want to know what God says. And the same is true for us. As we look at what God says, right? We have a whole world that has opinions, but what does God say? That's what's the important thing. Um, we want to be people of the book. Now, I want to look closer. I do care what you have to say, okay? Sound a little strong. I care. I love you. But at the end of the day, man, there's been so many people in this world so much smarter than us, and they haven't figured it all out. So it's like, man, let's just go to God here. Um, I want to look closer here at what Mary does for Jesus in this passage. And I'm going to adapt some of this from a commentary I read by Richard Phillips. Three words here that describe Mary's devotion to Jesus. First of all, Mary's devotion to Jesus was humble. Okay. She was humble. Ancient Palestine was a dusty, dirty climate. And since most people walked around in sandals, you had to wash your feet. Um, fairly often, and especially before entering into a house. And if you were a guest and you went to somebody else's house for a meal, 
they would often give you a basin of water so that you could wash your own feet. But did you know it was extremely unusual to wash somebody else's feet? In fact, I learned this this week. Not even Jewish slaves washed their master's feet because it was considered beneath them. And in ancient times, um, slavery often even meant something different than our common uh, uh, thoughts on slavery. But even in ancient times, slaves had some rights. They didn't have to wash their master's feet. And so here we have Mary who washes Jesus' feet for him. And instead of using water, Mary uses the most expensive jar of perfume that she owns, and she lets down her hair. And it would have been extremely uncommon, unusual, for a Jewish woman to let down her hair in front of a group of men like this. Jewish women did not do that. And then Mary proceeds to clean off the dirt from Jesus' feet with her own long hair. Now, contrast Mary's attitude toward Jesus with the attitudes of the other people in this passage. Most of the Pharisees and chief priests were not acting humbly toward Jesus, right? They refused to believe that he was God. They refused to bow down before Jesus. And they were eager to keep their position. They wanted to stay in authority. They didn't like Jesus because he was a threat to their authority. They were afraid that if Jesus kept growing in popularity, then people are going to look at him as the leader instead of us. And so they resolved to kill Jesus. And then also in the passage, you have Judas, who doesn't even see Jesus as worthy of such a costly gift. And then he has the nerve to say it out loud. But Mary has no leadership position. She has no authority. But she is so in awe of Jesus that she falls at his feet and pours over him the most valuable thing she has. And I don't think she sees her gift to Jesus as a generous. I think she sees her gift as worthy of Jesus. And she sees herself as unworthy of Jesus. Because she's humble before the Lord. Is your devotion to Jesus humble? Christians, when you read God's word and pray to him, do you ever consider what you're actually doing? Do you ever do this with fear and trembling? Do you ever think about the awesomeness of God that is frightening, but at the same time, it fills you with joy because you know that God is on your team, right? Is your devotion to Jesus humble in how you view life? Are you constantly looking for recognition from people and position because it satisfies your ego? Or are you satisfied with serving your family and your church and your community and working at your workplace however God asks, regardless of human recognition? Do you believe that you need Jesus? Do you see yourself as completely hopeless without Jesus today? Completely helpless without Jesus? Is your devotion to Jesus humble? 
Second, Mary's devotion to Jesus was courageous. Her devotion was courageous. It took a lot of courage to do what Mary did. Now, first of all, we know the Jewish leaders had given orders that if anybody knew where Jesus was, then he or she should let them know so that they might arrest him. And here Mary is, not turning Jesus into the authorities, and in fact, she's helping host a dinner for him. She's an accomplice. And second, Mary shows great courage by doing something radical. Okay, this is huge. She does something radical to worship Jesus without caring what anybody else in the room thinks. You get that? Several of the people around her who even claim to be Jesus' followers do think she's crazy for her radical devotion to God. How would you follow Jesus differently if you weren't afraid of what people thought of you? How would you follow Jesus differently if you weren't afraid of what people thought of you? In the 1800s, Pastor J.C. Ryle wrote a book called Thoughts for Young Men. It's a short book, great book. And I'm reading through this with a few young guys in our church right now. And he writes, The thought, what will my friends say or think of me, nips many a good inclination in the bud. The fear of being looked at, laughed at, ridiculed, prevents many a good habit from being taken up. There are Bibles that would be read this very day if the owners dared. They know they ought to read them, but they're afraid. What will people say? There are knees that would be bent in prayer this very night, but the fear of man forbids it. What would my wife say? What would my brother, my friend, my companion say if they saw me praying? Oh, what wretched slavery this is, and yet how common. So may Jesus continue to help us care much more about what he thinks of us than about what other people think of us, right? May we seek to worship Jesus courageously with our hearts, with our minds, with our words and money and actions, just like Mary did. When you look at the other people in this passage, you don't see courage. They're mostly concerned, the Jewish leaders, with keeping their positions and with keeping the favor of the Romans. They want people to like them rather than pursuing Jesus like they should. Is your devotion to Jesus courageous? And third, Mary's devotion to Jesus was costly. Mary's devotion to Jesus was costly. It cost Mary a lot to break that jar of perfume over Jesus' feet. Mary wasn't asking, what's the least I have to give to Jesus and still be his follower? What's the minimum I have to do and still be saved? That's more in line with what Judas was thinking. He wanted the money that he could get from selling the perfume. But not Mary. She says, what great thing do I have that I can give to Jesus? What has God given me that I can give back to him? And she finds her very special jar of perfume, which may have been an heirloom. And again, it was equal to your annual salary, your annual wages, 
and she anoints Jesus with it. And as the other people in the room watched Mary do this, some of them thought, that is so irresponsible. She's wasting everything she has on this. Doesn't she know she doesn't get that back? What if she needs to sell that someday for money? What's she going to do then? What about her retirement? That's her retirement. How's she going to take care of herself in her old age if she keeps giving expensive gifts to Jesus? Sadly, this type of thinking permeates Christian culture today and non-Christian culture as well. Yes, it's wise to save some money, but it's also unwise to be so safe with your money that you don't truly need God. That's unwise. What's clear, what we see about what Jesus thinks about her gift is that he loves it. He loves Mary's sacrifice. He loves that she gives all she has to him. And he rebukes his own disciples in favor of this lowly woman. As you and I consider how we use the gifts God has given us, and specifically money, because that's what we're talking about in this passage, as we consider how we use our money, are we generous like Mary toward Jesus, or are we self-seeking like Judas toward Jesus? I mean, I was thinking through, have I, have you ever made a sacrificial, a sacrificial gift to God? And it's not about how impressive of a gift you give to the Lord. It's about what you give in proportion to what you have. That's how you can determine a sacrifice. Charles Spurgeon said, we would count no expense to be wasted that could glorify Christ. Suffering would be pleasure and loss would be gain if thereby we could surround his brow with brighter crowns and make him more glorious in the eyes of men and angels. That's an awesome quote. <laughs> Since Jesus isn't here in the flesh, though, who do we give our financial gifts to? Well, the Bible says that we should give our gifts to Jesus' bride, his people, his church. And also we give to our Christian brothers and sisters in need, and we give to non-Christians in need also. And by God's grace, this is what happens. We're talking about what the Holy Spirit does in our hearts. By God's grace, giving to Jesus becomes a joy and not a burden because we know whom we have trusted. We know whom we have trusted, and it is a joy to give to him. I think about, that car, think about that car today, 300 bucks. We eternally impacted a huge group of people on this earth that we'll never know, probably, this side of heaven. Wow, I want to invest my money like that. <laughs> I don't know about you. I want to invest my money in God's kingdom. Is your devotion to Jesus humble? Is it courageous? And is it costly? I really think those are really valuable questions to ask so that we can sharpen ourselves by the power of the Spirit and better worship God as He ought to be worshipped in our lives. And at the same time, we acknowledge that in this life, none of us will be devoted to Jesus like we ought to be. And that's unworthy of God. That's sinful. And that's why we need Jesus.
get that? That's why we need Jesus. Because Jesus' devotion to the glory of God was perfectly humble and perfectly courageous and perfectly costly because he knows that ours isn't. Regarding Jesus' humility, Philippians 2 says that though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant or a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, which nobody wanted to die on the cross, obviously. Regarding Jesus' courage, Philippians 2 says that Jesus made himself a man of no reputation for us. He was mocked, he was ridiculed, his reputation was tarnished because he was so devoted to us. And even though Jesus asked God the Father to take away the agony of the cross if there were any other way to save humanity, Jesus courageously concluded in his prayer to God and the, the Father in the garden, yet not my will, but yours. Yours be done. And Jesus courageously continued his path to the cross. Regarding the costliness of Jesus' devotion, we can't fully comprehend everything that it cost Jesus. We know it cost him the riches of heaven. We know that it cost him uninterrupted fellowship with God the Father. We know that it cost him his safety. We know that it cost him his health. And we know that it cost him his actual very life. Yet we read in Hebrews 12 that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen? And it's Jesus' perfect humility and perfect courage and perfect costly devotion to the glory of God and to our salvation that inspires us and fuels us and empowers us to now love God and others in a big way. Because Jesus was perfect for us. He lived perfectly for us, and when he was crucified, he suffered for our pride, and he suffered for our cowardice, and he suffered for our greed and for our selfishness. And Jesus removed the eternal stain of these sins from us. And then, having cleansed us, he miraculously transferred to our spiritual accounts before God his own perfection. So now we are, what Paul says, justified before God. We have become the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We have been declared not guilty of any wrongdoing before God because of Jesus. And we have been saved by grace forever if we've put our faith in Jesus. Isn't that awesome? And if we've been united to Jesus through faith in him, then he invites us to celebrate our union with him by taking the Lord's Supper together 
as his disciples. So as the communion servers come forward, I want us to take just a few moments and examine our hearts, like Scripture says we should. Examine our hearts before we take the Lord's Supper. Are there sins that we need to confess to God that we haven't confessed? Are there sins that maybe are, are, are interrupting our fellowship with God right now? Thank Him for His salvation. Thank you for, his, for Him for His forgiveness. Thank Him for the evidences of grace in your life. Let's take a few minutes just to talk to God.